Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. In today's show, we're interviewing tax strategist Dustin Griffiths with King's Tax and Accounting. Now, we've had him on the show a couple times before because tax is a key area that we see over and over again that business owners of all types are leaking money. So let's bring this into perspective for a minute. If you are overpaying your tax bill by, say, $20,000, $50,000, or even $100,000 because you didn't know how to interpret the thousands of pages of the tax code, when would you want to know? Now, what could you do if you kept that extra 20000 50000 or 100000 of money that you made instead of owing it in taxes? And now, if it took a very special person to understand this tax code and be able to help you apply it proactively so that you stop overpaying this year and every year going forward, how far would you go to find them? Well, we're about to shorten your path to tax savings because Dustin has been putting more money back in business owners' pockets for years. Now, every person's unique set of circumstances means that there's certain strategies that may work in some cases, but not in others. Now, because Dustin has so much experience, that helps him to be able to understand how to apply those tax strategies specifically for specific types of business owners. Now, one type of business owner that we work with are medical and alternative medicine professionals. So we wanted to bring you specific tax strategies that work for those kind of doctors. Now, if you are one, you're about to be astounded. And if not, you're going to glean some key insights and takeaways that might quite possibly work for you in your industry as well. So stay tuned. Now here at The Money Advantage, we are a community of wealth creators, entrepreneurially minded business owners who want more financial control and cash flow. Now, that's why we've put together the three-step business owner's cash flow system to help you keep more of the money you make and then protect it. And not only that, but finally to turn it into more through the right investing decisions so that you can create time and money freedom. So today's conversation is going to help you look at how you save money and keep that money in your pocket, increasing your cash flow by paying less in taxes strategically so that you have more money to put to work and more money that you can use to build time and money freedom with. So let's go ahead and dive into this conversation. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall, along with my co-host, Bruce Wayner. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. Uh, Taxes are always something this time of year that business owners are thinking about because uh, Monday was the deadline for extension for business owners. And uh, I think this is great timing that we have one of uh, the people that we uh, have for our resource here in the United States that actually loves the tax code and helping people sift through that, especially business owners. So I want to welcome Dustin here today. Thanks, Bruce Rachel. It's good to be here with you guys. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dustin, for joining us on the show today. So tell us a little bit about your experience in working with doctors, dentists, and chiropractors. And Really, I want you to kind of focus on why do this group of professionals specifically end up paying more tax than they need to? Sure, sure. Um, So to be honest, it started with uh, the first firm that I was at. Um, That firm actually became 
a, had a sister company that became quite a um, consulting practice for dentists. And so while there, the consulting practice did consulting with dentists, helped them increase cash flow, uh, client retention or client engagement. And then we would get, the tax firm side would get the, uh, the tax work for those uh, clients. Um, from there, you know, then we, we began working with uh, that. That led us into working with other doctors, um, you know, some specifically, oh, I apologize, I can't think of the name right now, the people that put you to sleep and make sure that you... Anesthesiologists. Anesthesiologists, thank you, Bruce. You know, we got quite a few anesthesiologists and we kind of worked in there and then, and then chiropractors started coming our way and, and working with chiropractors as well. So um, my experience working with them is all of these people are so smart that I, I like, it blows me away how smart they are. Mm -hmm. They went to school for, frankly, longer than I would be willing to go to school. But yeah. they are so good at what they do, and they're so focused that this tax side sometimes gets left out. And it's, you know, it doesn't become a focus until they get out of school, and now they're running their own practice or doing their own thing, and, and now all of a sudden they have to think about it. And, and some of them again, super smart and make it work. A lot of them just don't have, especially in the early years of their practice while they're trying to build a client base, don't necessarily have the time or the, uh, I might even call it the mental capacity to go out and learn 70,000 pages of tax code, you know, and figure out what strategies might work for them or, or kind of how they can really utilize and maximize the tax code. Well, and I think it's, it's normal. It's a natural product of being great at the work that you do. And I mean, certainly we shouldn't have to go to work and, or to school to learn the tax code and learn all the business strategies and learn how to run our actual field. But at the same time, that leaves us in need of somebody who does have that expertise that can walk alongside of us and really be that um, shoulder to lean on and the person who really helps guide us to make the best decisions. And so sounds like you've had a lot of experience in this field, which is part of the reason we brought you on to talk specifically about tax strategies for this group of professionals. Yeah, so they, it's it's true. And, and frankly, just like I'm never going to figure out or go and learn how to be a brain surgeon, that's not the expertise that I want to have. And that's not where I need my focus. My focus is on taxes and and ultimately tax savings to clients. You know, how can I help them keep more dollars in their pocket? How do we utilize the tax code and the, the, the loopholes and the areas where we can really frankly apply it in the favor of the taxpayer and not give the government more money? That's excellent. And I love that we were even talking before the show about Dan Sullivan and the idea um, just, well, we just mentioned him, but he has this idea of focusing on your unique ability. And so part of the reason that we bring you onto the show is to share your unique ability of understanding and leveraging the tax code with people who need that expertise and guidance. And so that's what we're about to do today. So, awesome. so how do you strategize to pay the minimum legal tax this year and every year going forward? Because that's really a, a primary focus and something that I've heard you say so many times. Yeah, so uh, I, and I love how Bruce brought it up to start with. Monday was the extension deadline for businesses. So lots of business owners are in the tax mindset right now. And one of the big things that I talk with clients about is 
you got to plan in the current year for tax strategies and tax savings that you want to see when you file your taxes next year. When we get into when when we get into next year, so in this case April of 2020, and we're filing for 2019, there are very few things that we're going to be able to do to affect 2019 taxes. We got to do those things now, and and so there's you know whether it's investing in new equipment, whether it's let's say buying your own building, whether whatever the case is, putting money away into retirement account whatever we've got to we really need to game plan for that today in order to really get the most out of it um, for when we're going to file taxes next year so there's there's going to be a whole i mean every situation is really unique and so there's going to be a whole bunch of things that that may apply to somebody's situation but again without without having a discussion with your accountant or cpa now you're potentially losing out on tax savings that you'll see in April when you file. Dustin, I think the, what you're saying here is what I've been preaching for years and years and years is that um, we try to determine a lot of times how much taxes we can actually save this year and we don't consider if that's going to cause us to pay more taxes in the future. And when you wait until um, March or April to try to determine that, really the only thing you can focus on is saving taxes in this particular year. Or, or, but if you do it before December 31st, then you can actually not only help yourself save taxes now, but you can at least have a strategy for future years. And many, and many of these business owners are so busy at least they think in their mind that they're too busy to, to plan. But, it, but effectively, if they would take some of your advice and say this has to be an ongoing, not just a, a quarterly thing, but, but a monthly thing that needs to be looked at all 12 months going forward. And then when you actually uh, come to December 31st, you already know through those last 12 months how we are doing your particular tax savings for this year and your tax savings for years and years and years to come. And so planning is really the key. And I agree with that a hundred percent. Yep. Couldn't have, couldn't have said it better. So yeah, Dustin, I think one of the things that we talk about as well with you and just in our philosophy as well, is that if you just defer a tax and you're pushing it into the future, you're not setting yourself up for paying the minimum tax every year going forward. That's just potentially making this year a tiny bit better. And so I really love that um, you don't focus on doing what everyone else does in the tax world and just deferring to the future. Yes, there is a lot of that. So, and, so oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, maybe you're going to go here, Bruce. And, and so that people understand maybe when we're talking about deferring tax versus saving tax, um, a good example of this is, is like your uh, traditional IRA. For instance, if I put cash into a traditional IRA, it gives me, it reduces my tax this year, so I'm saving taxes in my current year, but then in the future, when I withdraw that in retirement, I'm paying tax on the money with that when I withdraw it in retirement. So that is yes. simply a tax deferral strategy, not a tax, not a tax 
saving strategy in the end because we're just trading tax. We're not going to pay it today. We're going to pay it in retirement is really what that is. So um, it just, just so that people are clear kind of maybe when we're talking tax deferral, that's what we mean. That exactly, that, that exactly, exactly where I was going, Dustin, okay. because I am surprised how many well-educated people who you already mentioned think tax deferral means that they're not going to pay taxes in the future. Uh, it, is, um, it is amazing to me that they don't even kind of grasp the concept of tax deferral. Somehow it means tax-free. Um, right. And so uh, that is something I think you, I, Rachel, anybody that is in the financial world needs to continue to educate people about because that is the bad and you're you're a tax professional but that is the badge of honor i think a lot of tax professionals wear is mm -hmm. oh look we're going to put this in in this tax deferral position whether it be a, a traditional ira a sep a simple a keel plan whatever you want to call it and then they they can put that tax return across the desk from a person and say look <clears throat> i got you an x amount of refund this year they don't talk about oh yeah oh and by the way in 20 years from now, you're actually going to pay taxes on that. We don't know what the tax rates are going to be. And we don't even know what tax bracket you're going to be because you may actually be so successful that you're going to be paying more taxes and a higher tax bracket at that time. So uh, that's, my, that's my soapbox that I get on all the time. And I'm so glad to talk to somebody like you <laughs> that actually will listen to me. Our, our soapboxes must be uh, must be brothers or sisters because I, I say the same thing, Bruce. I mean, for me, like today, tax code today, historically low tax rates. Yes. The tax rate, I mean, tax code in, in the past has been as high as 90%. So yep. ultimately what I'm doing is I'm trading tax today at a historically low rate for tax in the future when... Who knows what the tax rate's going to be? And so I could be costing myself significant amounts. So you and me, Bruce, we're, well, all of us, we're on the same page. You know Absolutely. I mean? Yeah, we actually just did a show on this, I think, last week, Bruce. And of course, the timing of when these air are a little bit different, but it's absolutely true. We are in a low tax rate environment since about the 80s compared to historical highs before that. And you look and you say, well, where are taxes going in the future? I don't know, but everyone I talk to says probably up. So then why would we want to pay tax in that environment where taxes are probably higher? Yeah. Well, what's interesting, when you look at the tax codes and you go to the historical tax codes, the time that they are the highest are times when we're coming out of wars. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, are, we have been in a war in the Afghanistan region now. And I, this, this number just blew me away, but I want, I want podcast listeners to understand this. So we started this kind of uh, conflict or war with Afghanistan in 2001, and we have spent $2 trillion on the conflict in Afghanistan. I'd like to say that again. We've spent $2 trillion in this. So we have, we have overspent on a war, in my opinion. We have overspent on other things that we can, on both sides of the political aisle, aisle. Uh, if you've listened to enough of these podcasts, you know that I, I don't think there is a fiscally conservative politician. Um, and, and yet, and yet the, the thing that historically we have done as a country is raised our tax rates after wars, and we continue the, now to push them lower and lower and lower, somehow thinking, oh, well, this will be better this time. 
and it's just it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So I think going forward, there has to be not only a correction in the stock market, but there has to be a correction in income tax rates. Rates. Absolutely. I, I just I just pulled up real quick just for everyone. Um, after World War One. Um, in 1917, the tox, top tax rate was 77%. In 1932, the top tax rate was 63%, and that was during the Great Depression. After World War II, in 1944, the top tax rate was 94%. So, yeah. I, I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on this, and, and I apologize if I... Uh, Got us a little sidetracked on on the soapbox here. But. I'll take re- I'll take responsibility for that, and I don't care that we're you know, sidetracked. <laughs> no, that's this is really so important to yes, make sure that we understand. I mean, if we just say, "Well, look, I don't want to pay taxes today," but we don't look at the big picture and we don't think about, well, what does the future look like when I do have to pay taxes? What growth rate am I going to have on my money? How much is the government stake in my tax deferred money? If we're not thinking about these things we're setting ourselves up for failure. I mean, we're shooting ourselves in the foot because we think we're doing the best thing today. And unfortunately that can lead us to make really bad choices when we don't look at the big picture. Yes. So I think I agree. it's extremely important. So, I agree. so, let's, so can we talk about some of the things with uh, the chiropractors, the dentists, the, uh, the doctors, let's get into just a little of specifics. Uh, one of the great things is that they actually own their own property, correct? That, that they actually have their practice in. Now, doctors, uh, for the most part, are being put, because of insurance reasons, so on and so forth, are being pushed to be more employees of hospitals. But dentists and chiropractors are still very, very independent. So if they can own their own property, Dustin, talk about some of those advantages. Yeah, sure. So there's um, specifically um, this owning your own building became even more beneficial with the um, tax reform that just happened, the Tax tax Cut and Jobs Act. Um, mm-hmm. What it is is that, unfortunately, chiropractors and dentists and doctors are considered uh, members of a specified service business. Now, ultimately, what that means is if, if I own my own business, the tax code as my, as my business income reports to my personal return, the tax code gave me a 20% deduction for that. However, if I'm a member of a specified service business, there are gonna be income limitations that once I eclipse those, I'm not eligible for the 20% deduction at all. Mm-hmm. None of my income from the specified service business is. So if I'm, uh, I believe the limit is 315,000 for a married filing joint couple. So if, yeah. I'm a, if I'm a dentist or a chiropractor and I now have $400,000 of income and I'm, and I'm fi- married filing joint, I get none of my 20% deduction, which is a big number. Oh, sure, yeah. Number. And we're talking, you know, if you apply that to your tax rate, I mean, you're, you're maybe missing out on tens of thousands of dollars of tax savings by doing that. So if you own your own building, what you do is you have your building operating in a separate business, which I'm I'm not an attorney. I've had enough discussions though that if you own your own building, you should have the discussion with your attorney about having it separate from your practice because of liability purposes. 
So number one, we're getting some liability protection. But number two, what happens is, is that my specified service business, my practice, can pay additional rents to my entity that holds my building. Now what happens is I have money coming to my personal return in two forms and fashion or from two businesses. Mm -hmm. And so even if I'm getting above my limit for my specified service business and the 20% deduction there, my rental activity business is not subject to the same limitations. So I can still get my 20% deduction on the income from my rental activity business. So that's one that's fascinating. Way, yeah, one way that really changed with new tax reform of how we want to utilize a building, specifically with dentists, chiropractors, those, those people that are within this specified service business considerations. Okay. That's really interesting because then you could have the income come over to the rental services company and so you're not limiting the taxation or you're not limiting your deduction that you're able to take on that portion of your money. You got it. You got it. Now, one of the other ways that um, often is overlooked for people that do own their own building is um, a strategy called cost segregation. So typically what happens is, is a commercial building um, is depreciated or is written off over 39 years. That's a long time for me to really get my tax benefits out of that. Um, so the way that a cost segregation works is that it takes your commercial building and it would break it down into its component parts. Um, the component parts being basically the frame, the building itself, the land, um, the parking lot, the built-in improvements, so that could be cabinetry, that could be wiring, that could be any number of things. And the reason why you break it down into its component parts is that those component parts are depreciated differently. For instance, a parking lot is depreciated over 15 years. Built-ins like cabinets or other items like that are going to be seven years. Wiring is typically five years. So what we've done is all of a sudden we, we have accelerated depreciation on a fair amount of the property. Now this goes back to, I do want to kind of mention this, this goes back to what we were talking about before. This gives us more deductions today when our income is higher, but it leaves less depreciation available for the future. So this is a little bit of a tax deferral strategy, but the idea is we want to, we want to gather all of those major deductions into the years when we have the most expenses. Yeah, and I could, but I could uh, argue, though, that then it's going to save you money right now, and you're going to have more money to invest Amen. today when the, when the money's going to be worth more today, and it's going to be eroded value into the future. So it's kind of like a reverse tax deferral. And, Correct. Yeah, in that way, you are exactly right, Bruce, that, yeah, it gives me more dollars to invest today, which creates more money for me in the future. So there, it, it certainly does. Um, now, the other thing that is often overlooked, and this is a real kind of specific thing, is that in a cost segregation, a portion of the cost of your building gets set aside for land. Now, land is not a depreciable asset meaning that 
it's if, if we got allocated, let's say, let's say a hundred thousand dollars to the land value, we never get that hundred thousand as a tax write-off. Oh, interesting. Here's, here's where it gives us benefit. When we turn around and we sell our building in the future, there's there's going to be tax consequences for selling the building. Some of that income is going to be taxed at whatever our regular tax rates are. Okay, and this is a very specific thing called depreciation recapture. Okay, when we've segregated out the land value of our building, we can allocate more of the purchase price to the land because let's be honest, what's growing in value over time? Is it my building that's getting more and more run down? No, it's the land that's, mm-hmm. growing, that's gaining value. It's the and location. So we can allocate more of the purchase price or more of the sale price for that dentist or that chiropractor to the land where they get long-term capital gains tax treatment, which is always a better tax rate than your ordinary tax rate or that depreciation recapture tax rate. So there's, so we're talking tax deferral and that gives you more tax or more dollars today to invest. But there's also this very thing that's on the very back end when you sell that property that we're going to be able to achieve um, tax savings there and tax savings being tax free dollars because we're taxing it at a lower rate. That's fascinating. And I really love how you brought the full picture into perspective because if we're just thinking about depreciating more quickly with cost segregation, yes, it could lead to more taxes in the future in a way. But what you're talking about is making sure that even at the sale of the property, which you're, you're looking at the full life cycle of owning that property. Yep. And, and then to Bruce's point as well, we're always talking about the more dollars you can keep in your control today, the more you have to be able to direct to a place that you can protect them and then that you can put those dollars to work earning more dollars, which is how you are then able to acquire cash flowing assets and owning a property might even be one of those. So really you want to make sure that you're using as much of these tax strategies as possible, depending on what works for you in your situation, keeping those dollars and putting them to work for you. So, um, Thank you for sharing that. You have some additional strategies as well that can apply to outside of just chiropractors, dentists, and doctors, but um, talk about pay structure change and where you see a lot of dollars that are being overspent in taxes that can be shored up with changing your pay structure, not the, te- the, not the pay amount, but your pay structure. Sure. So uh, before I get in there, there is one thing that before we kind of get into a little bit more general type things for for chiropractors and dentists specifically, um, there are there are tax credits available for ADA compliant items. So, for instance, I'm in dentist or chiropractors that I've worked with, ADA compliant tables are eligible for tax credits, and those tax credits are fifty percent of the cost of the table, up to five thousand dollars a year of tax credits. Now, that's literally that's tax free dollars to you. So. Um, taking advantage of that or making sure that your CPA is taking advantage of that is going to be a big one. Now, if we're talking differences in pay structures, hold on, hold on. Let's go back. So tax credit credit is better than a tax uh, deduction. And can you make sure that you articulate that for somebody who maybe didn't catch that? I know you said it's a better deal than tax deduction. And you've said that before on previous shows. What's the difference? Okay. So a tax deduction reduces your income but then it's still applied to a tax rate. 
So for instance, if I spent $100 on something, that's going to give me a $100 deduction. If I'm in the 30% tax rate, okay, that $100 spend saved me $30 in taxes. Mm -hmm. So my, my net bottom line tax savings on a $100 deduction would be $30. A tax credit is a dollar for dollar reduction in tax. So if I got a $100 tax credit, I'm literally paying $100 less in tax. There's no application of it to my tax, to my tax rate. So, right. so tax deductions apply to tax rates, and that gives you your end tax savings. Tax credits are just straight dollars that you're not paying. So that's excellent. Hopefully that is clear. Hopefully yes. Clear. Yes, the tax deduction reduced by the tax rate at that percentage and tax credit being dollar for dollar. I feel like that's very clear and thank you for articulating that. Yeah. So yes, now we can go ahead and jump over into pay structure. So pay structure, I mean, there's, there's going to be a number of different things that go into this. Um, some of those things have to do with how your entity is struck or, or how your practice is structured. I mean, if you're running as a sole proprietor business, that's frankly going to be probably the worst for you tax wise. Um, you know, there's partnerships, there's S corporations, there's C corporations. Ultimately, with, with the pay structure, what we're trying to do is we're trying to maximize the amount of savings of Social Security and Medicare tax you're paying. Now, now we're probably into another bit of philosophical uh, debate, but if somebody really believes in the Social Security system, Reducing the amount that they're paying into Social Security may not be the best plan. My personal belief is that there's no way that the Social Security system can continue in the form and fashion that it is. Mm -hmm. And so for me personally, I'd rather not have my dollars in a Social Security system that, frankly, I don't believe is going to be there at all, or I'm not planning on for my retirement. I'm not planning on any Social Security dollars. I want to use those. I want to use those dollars someplace else where I have control over the funds and I know what the funds are going to give me. So, and I really like that you pointed out the difference because while that is your philosophy and I would say it's mine as well, and I'm not going to speak for Bruce, but we ultimately want to be in a position where we're not relying on another entity to um, have it together and make sure that we're well taken care of in the future, especially when it's underfunded you are also being respectful to somebody who maybe has paid in quite a bit to social security and Medicare and right. is maybe close to an age that they're looking at saying, Hey, I am planning to retire and I do expect to have as much of that available to me as possible. And so we have people from all different walks of life and all different yeah. perspectives. And so thank you for being um, yeah. clear about the difference there. Yeah. And this, again, kind of, we, we've mentioned this already a couple of times, but everybody's situation is so unique and so personal to them. You just mm -hmm. got to have the discussions about your specific situation. One of the things that a lot of people and Rachel, maybe we should have uh, our social security resource expert on the podcast sometime is that the way that social security is structured, it is a larger percentage of the of the person's future income for a lower earner than it is for a higher earner. So it's not one-to-one. -one. Let me just give you one real quick example. Let's say a person whose lifetime uh, income is 
uh, averages $30,000 a year and their social security benefit is $1,000. We would instinctively think that if we make in a lifetime of 60,000 or twice that amount, then our lifetime social security benefit would be twice a thousand or $2,000. And it doesn't work like that. It is actually tiered uh, going upwards. So a lot of people think, well, I'm trying to maximize my social security. They think it's a maximization of one to one and it's not. It is actually, it actually is uh, proportional towards a lower income learner than it is a higher income learner. And there's a variety of calculations. I've actually done those calculations with our social security expert. It is very interesting and it may be, I'm not saying an eye opener because it's not, they're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. It's been, it's been like this for decades. It's just the way it is. I think that that's, that's really good. And, and to be honest, like from somebody who doesn't run social security calculations, I think that that would be a huge understanding that and hearing a podcast of, a, of an expert, I think would be a great thing. Now, granted, yeah. that's just my plug for another, yeah. another podcast, but yeah, that's, it's, again, social, social security is what it is. But in my mind, I want people to have control of the dollars if they can't today. And so making sure that you're in the right entity structure and that you're then, uh, you're then following the rules and regulations that apply to that entity structure. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, in an S corporation, the person who's running the day-to-day operations has to be paid a quote-unquote reasonable wage. Well, that can be very different. And here's a, here's a good example of a dentist. Um, when I actually moved into my first house, one of my neighbors was an IRS auditor. And so one day I just said, hey, let's go to lunch and, and I want to pick your brain. And, and so he said, sure. And we were friends and that was, it was great. And I didn't necessarily agree to how he applied the code all the time. And I'm sure if we'd gone into it a lot, he wouldn't agree necessarily with how I like to apply the code. But we talked specifically about this reasonable wage piece um, for an S corporation. He had just finished up two audits with dentists, oddly enough, that we're having this conversation. One dentist, both of them had made, ended up after all of their deductions, had made around 400,000. One dentist paid himself $25,000 a year as his wage. The other dentist paid himself 115,000. Well, under an audit, an auditor can come in and say that somebody's reasonable salary, quote unquote, is too low and they can assess the wage, that reasonable salary to whatever they wanted it to be. In the case of the dentist that only paid himself 25,000, this auditor increased his reasonable compensation salary to $225,000. At that time, that dentist then owed all of the social security and Medicare tax on that underpayment of his salary. The second dentist who paid himself 115,000, the auditor ended up leaving alone. And that was because he felt that dentist wasn't trying to just basically stick it to the IRS and pay themselves a really unreasonable amount. So, that, that concept of reasonable wage is a big one, is a, is a big one. And so you want to make sure that you're, that you're being, you're paying enough. Yeah, reasonable. Thanks, Bruce. You're being reasonable <laughs> enough in your wage that if an audit occurred, the IRS isn't going to come in and really basically make an example of you. 
you know, the, I, when I talk about this, reasonable salaries with business owners, um, I want to get your opinion on this. But the other thing I want, um, I heard somebody say, another tax professional is, okay, it really has to be how much you want to push the limits, whatever you think the limits are. Because there's also something about time value of money. So if you were to say, okay, 25,000 isn't reasonable, but 115,000 is reasonable, I'd like to, I think 75, and, and I know I'm taking some, uh, some risk here about an auditor thinking is reasonable, so on and so forth, and I may have to pay this back in the future and maybe some uh, interest and fines with it. But those interests and fines, if I never have to do it, then obviously I never pay it. And if I do have to pay it, then I have to also have to uh, realize that I was able to do something with that additional $40,000 that I had every year to grow my business and the, and, and the money was worth more at that time. My, that was my example, uh, Justin, of another way of thinking about this. But I, what I want to know from you is when you look at reasonable salary, I am not asking you to tell me what is reasonable or what is not reasonable, but what is the salary for? Is it actually to do the dentistry or is it to actually run your corporation? Is it actually to run your business? I think that is a, a very uh, confusing thing for people. It is. It's, it's really confusing. Now, um, the answer to your question is, is it's a combination of all of those things. If I'm a dentist, I need to pay myself for actually doing the dental work, but then I need to pay myself for overseeing employees, and maybe that's basically the role of an HR person. Um, if I'm a chiropractor and I'm just running my own office, okay, maybe I'm also doing tasks that an admin would do or a receptionist would do. or a So there's this whole breadth of it's, it's what, am I, what should I be paying for the services that are being rendered? Now, if I'm... If I'm performing all of these different job tasks, some of my job tasks are going to require a higher rate than, than mm -hmm. other job tasks. And so um, if, you, if you ask the same CPA or accountant or, or you ask the same question to 10 different CPAs or accountants, you're probably going to get 13 different answers. Mm -hmm. So um, the IRS code does not give, hey, it should be this amount or it should be this percentage or it should be there is, it just literally states a reasonable salary. And, and maybe it's locality dependent. Maybe it's, um, you yeah. know, state by state or higher cost of living areas too. I mean, that probably plays a factor, doesn't it? That would play. I would, I would take that into account as well. Um, so all of these things. Now, I, back to what you were saying, Bruce, about somebody, maybe if I said it's not 25 it's somewhere between 25 and 115 and they said 75. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it comes down to how much they'd like to push that envelope. My goal would be to advise them to the point where I want to make sure that it's not throwing up an audit trigger for the IRS. If somebody, if a dentist came to me and he had made 400,000 and he said, I have a $25,000 wage. I'd probably stop him and I'd say, hey, we need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. So my goal is, again, if, if we had this discussion, I would probably say, oh, you know, 75, that's probably really pushing it. But, you know, I can understand how we can get there. 
and here's how we can get there. You're also being your admin or, or you're being the front desk receptionist. And guess what? You can pay somebody $8 an hour to do that. And, and so a bunch of your time is spent doing that. Now, another thing to take into account is if I'm a dentist and I only work in my practice half of the time and I just am doing, let's say I'm on the board of a nonprofit or I'm involved in other business ventures, that also goes into determining how much my salary has to be because I'm only working in the company half time. Mm -hmm. And no business owner in their right mind would pay a full-time salary to somebody who's only working half time. Yeah, that's, that, that is a very good point. And here's another thing I'd like to get your uh, opinion on, because this, this is a, a savings, I think, that is, is a big savings for people, because um, it, is, it is an opinion. Now, you, I don't want to throw up any audit um, signals either, but here's where I have a, a difficulty with it. I want to get your opinion on this. Business owners often have revenue incomes that go like this, you know, up and down, up and down. So when a person pays themselves, like let's say in 2017, uh, they paid themselves, a, let's just use $100,000 uh, salary, and their revenue was $500,000, and then the next year comes around, and they just pay themselves $100,000, but the revenue goes down to $300,000, and then the next year they pay themselves $100,000, and it goes up to a million dollars. What I've heard uh, people, CPAs and, and uh, tax professionals say, well, the reasonable salary should be 50% of your revenue. And I'm sure, Dustin, you've heard things mm -hmm. like this before. And I always say, well, these people don't do anything differently when they make 300000 or 500000 or a million dollars a lot of times. So how can you just set this on 50% of the revenue? Um, because the people are doing the same job along the way. I mean, I'm a perfect example of it. I'm, some years my revenue is real good because I, I meet a couple of business owners. We do some really good things for them. I add a lot of value and my revenue goes up that year. But then the next year I don't meet as many business owners or I, or I get involved in some of the things that you're talking about. You know, mm -hmm. I get involved more with the Arthritis Foundation or I get involved in, in the school after school programs and I just don't work in the business as much. So I don't have as many opportunities. So where, where does this, um, do, you, do you advise your people to change their salaries every year according to the revenue or do you tell them to keep the same and just incrementally go up with cost of living? How, uh, how do you do that? Good question. Um, so my personal philosophy, 50% is typically too much. 50% um, would be the top end of usually where I would have somebody be. Um, and that's, you know, if somebody's making half a million dollars a year. Now, clarification real quick. Obviously, this is, this is very much locality dependent when I get into this. I live in Utah, okay? Utah, uh, people, are pretty, people are pretty tight with their money. I, we're just uh, penny pinchers, I guess. But <laughs> it, it is... Now, that is changing with a lot of tech companies and whatnot coming in. But unless I'm a huge major corporation, if I'm a CEO at a, at a smaller company, I'm not making more than $125,000 a year. So if I'm running my business in Utah and I have profits of, of half a million dollars, 
I'm not paying myself more than 125000 because that's what the going rate for a CEO in Utah is. Uh, and then the perception would be that if you paid yourself more, then that you're, you know, greedy or that you're, okay. um, you know. Okay. Yeah, there, there could be a lot of perceptions there. Yeah. But, so it's really locality dependent. So typically, I'm going to start somebody, depending upon now, if they're, if they're in that 150 to 200000 or 300000 of profit range, I, I usually don't like to go less than 30% of profit as my starting wage, but not more than 50%. Now, that's my, my opinion and my experience and what I've seen and when I look out there, um, what's going on. Um, now, um, to your comment of do we really drastically change salary one year to the next, typically with my clients, no. We're going to figure out what it is and it's going to be that amount, and it's going to be a salary this year, and we're going to plan on that same salary next year, unless you just knock it out of the park, and you're just, you know, and, and all of a sudden we're at 15% effectively as your salary, that might be a little low, in which case mm. we'll bump it up. And this comes back to what we started our discussion with. Uh, you got to have conversations throughout the year. If I've, got, if I've got a chiropractor who last year before paying himself his salary had $100,000 of profit, I'm probably going to pay him 40 as a salary and he can take 60,000 as draws. If in the next year we're having a discussion in September and he's like, yeah, I'm on track to have profits of 300,000. Well, in that case, 40,000 is probably too low for him. And so we bump his salary up a little bit for the fourth quarter and maybe he'll be at 60 this year. And then next year we just let it, we let part of the year happen so that we can see where people are tracking or trending and then we'll adjust their salary as necessary from there. At the same token, let's say I've been having really good business for the last five years and I'm paying myself a hundred thousand salary. If this year I decide to take a bunch of time off business and I, you know, and I'm doing other things and all of a sudden my profit is only a hundred thousand, I'm not going to pay myself a hundred thousand dollars salary. I'm going to rent my salary back down. So having these types of discussions throughout the year with your CPA, accountant, tax professional, whoever it is, is, is of such, like, I can't even express how much importance that's going to be for you. Yeah, well, it's just interesting that, I mean, nothing that we're talking about here is a set it and forget it thing. It's not something that you plan one year and you don't ever think about again. I mean, this is really about walking alongside somebody who can continually help look at your situation and monitor and make adjustments all along the way. I mean, that's the same thing that we're doing in someone's financial life. It's not like you mm -hmm. just set this in motion and then 25 years later you look and, and everything is perfect. It's really about making sure that you're making those incremental adjustments. And I just want to um, bring something out as well that I know we've talked about before on the show and then we talk about in our Money Finder conversation and our Money Finder webinar as well, where we're looking at these areas for finding and freeing up money leaks, finding and fixing, plugging those money leaks so that you can free up the cash flow. And so one of those is that pay structure change. And really the reason to do that is that if you're paying yourself um, all 400,000, say for instance, the um, I think you said they were dentists uh, that the IRS auditor yeah. had talked mm -hmm. about. So if they had paid themselves the full 400,000, in salary or wages, then they would have been paying self-employment tax on all of that 400,000 that came over as wages, right? Correct. And so the purpose of then being able to limit 
the amount that comes over as wages and have the rest come over as draws or distributions or as dividends is that you're not paying that self-employment tax, which is in the ballpark of the 15.3% on that portion, correct? Correct. You got it. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put one, one caveat in there real quick. The 15.3%, that's, that's a combination of both the Social Security tax and the Medicare tax. Social Security tax caps at a certain amount every year. Right now, it's at about 130000 so once my salary is above $130,000, i am only saving the Medicare tax portion. Now that's, right now, the Medicare tax is 2.9%. Mm-hmm. It's lower. That's, yeah. So in the case of a dentist, if, if I had a $150,000 salary rather than a $400,000 salary, my tax savings are 2.9% on the $250,000. And that works out to be... $7,200 in tax savings. So while 2.9% doesn't sound like a lot, seven grand is a fair amount of money, you know? Like I, mm-hmm. if a dentist doesn't want that money, I'm happy to put them in this strategy and they can give me those funds, you know? So I, I, I can use those money. Use you money. know, when you put it in that language, then it's pretty easy to see why you do want to make sure that even if it seems like it's just a small little amount of a strategy change, and a small percentage, it really does make a lot of sense to take advantage of these tax strategies so that you can keep those dollars. I mean, that's an extra, I don't know, that's more than a trip to Disney with the family. So That's right. You got it. So, um, Dustin, you also talk regularly about corporate rent. Can you share with us what that is? Sure. Yeah. So the tax code um, is, is built and has a caveat in it that, that deals with um, – people owning their own residence and the rental of that residence. Um, I am a golf addict. I love golf. And so I, I call this corporate rent, but another way that I think about it is what's called the Augusta rule. So every yes. year in April, there's the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. Well, those people leave, the people that live there leave for the week and rent out their houses for thousands and thousands of dollars a night. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I just got sent from somebody the opportunity to go to the masters. And I think that in the allocation of their fee was $3,000 a night for housing. So wow. we're talking big numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, the tax code says if, if I'm a taxpayer and I'm renting out my residence, as long as I do not rent my residence more than 14 days during the year, I never pay tax on the income that I generate from renting my residence. So these people that leave for the week, as long as they're never renting their house out or they don't rent it more than an additional seven days, they never pay tax on those dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. That's, I mean, if we're talking oh, yeah. three grand a night, seven nights, that's $21,000. If somebody's in a middle of the road tax bracket, we're talking five to $7,000 in tax savings. Pretty easy for that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't live in Augusta, Georgia as much as I wish I did. Um, <laughs> I live in Salt Lake City. Well, Salt Lake City, maybe the Olympics will come back here someday. You know, that's, but the odds of that are pretty slim. So I could Airbnb my house out to some random stranger, but I don't really love strangers in my house. I I like my house. I like it to be mine. So Uh how do I take advantage of this strategy? How do I rent my house out? Well, corporations and companies all over the globe have business meetings that they go out and they rent 
they rent space to have corporate meetings. These might be board of director meetings. These might be C-level team meetings. These might be uh, financial projection meetings. And they're going to go rent convention centers or conference rooms at hotels or, or these other spaces outside of their business location. It's a time when they can go work on their business rather than working in their business. Mm-hmm. Well, they're going to pay rent to this hotel or convention center or wherever. It's going to be a deduction for their business, and it's going to be taxable to the, that convention center or hotel. Well, the way we want to apply this strategy is that as a business owner, well, as, as Marshall Chiropractic, for example, if this was the case, Marshall Chiropractic could rent the home of Rachel Marshall, mm-hmm. and it could hold a board of director or a C-level or a financial or whatever the case may be, it can rent Rachel's home for that meeting. Just as it would pay to a hotel rent for the space, it can pay rent to Rachel Marshall for the space. Now, yes. Rachel Marshall, as long as she's not renting more than 14 days a year, that is never considered taxable income to Rachel Marshall, the individual. So it's money that we take as a that we are allowed by virtue of the tax code to take as a business deduction, put those dollars in your pocket personally, and you never pay tax on it personally. So that is literally tax-free money that we're going to give yourself from your business. Absolutely. So you're getting the deduction in the business and you're also getting the tax-free money on the personal side, which is, I mean, we use this strategy personally with our business and our personal residence as well. And granted the going rate in Virginia Beach or Chesapeake where I live as well is not, you know, $3,000 a day, but at the same time, it is a significant tax savings for us because that money is money coming over from the business into our personal lives that is not taxed. So, yep. And just like you, you mentioned there, the tax rates are going to be different for every location like um, Reno or not Reno. Uh, I have a sister that lives in Nevada. Uh, what's the little town? It's a mining town. All of a sudden I'm drawing a blank on it. The going rate in that mining town probably is not the same rate as the going rate in New York City. Right. So part of this is going to be figuring out what your going rate is. In Utah, in Salt Lake City, and so I would probably use Salt Lake City and, and you know, if the economy is where your city is, is comparable to Salt Lake, the going rate in Salt Lake City is $1,250 per day that you're going to rent your resident. So if we very simply had a meeting once a month at our homes, if our businesses, if, if a business rented our homes once a month and paid us that money, that's $15,000 a year tax-free. That's three to five thousand dollars in tax savings probably at least that's awesome and again just another piece of this strategy that specifically can work for doctors dentists and chiropractors but also if you're a business owner and you're not in that profession probably something you can be thinking about as well and i know dustin you would say this time and time again you need to make sure there's legitimate business use there needs to be a correct paper trail on this there's strategic and correct ways to do this so that you have the right documentation don't just guess your way through it and try to apply this strategy in a DIY fashion. You're going to make a lot of mistakes and that would be subject to an audit. So um, also if you end up renting over the 15 days, then everything's subject to tax. That's so. right. That's right. If I, rent, if I rent for a 15th day, 
all of my income is taxable, not just that one day. Right, so, right, which is um, a huge incentive to make sure that you don't just take this idea and say, hey, great idea, and let me go ahead and do it myself and misapply it. It's, it is a specific strategy that can be used, but only under proper guidance of a tax professional like someone like Dustin. So now, as- I, Yeah, I will real quick. There, I can't tell you how many people that I've shared this with, you know, people that I'm just having discussions with that work with other tax professionals. And they go back to their tax professional and they tell their tax professional this and their tax professional says, no, I don't think so. I, that, is, that is going to be, if you talk with your tax professional about this and they tell you no, potentially they're not looking out for your best interest. I'm happy to give, as a matter of fact, I'll just say it right here on the podcast, the tax code that allows us to take advantage of this is tax code citation 280, subsection A, subsection G, subsection 2. So 280AG2. That is the citation for the tax code in the tax code that allows us to take advantage of this strategy. So if your tax professional says, no, I'm not going to do this, they're not looking out for you. Well, and what's interesting about that is that, again, you said you can go to 10 different CPAs, get 13 different answers. And really what you're looking at is how do you find somebody who loves the tax code enough to understand it and apply it in a way that works strategically for you, but is also legal. And I just want to really, really stress, we're not doing anything that is outside of the bounds of legality or, or, or bringing ideas to the table that are on the fringe. These are really things that are built straight into the tax code. And thank you for even sharing that. Um, the codes section where somebody could go look that up directly. As we want to get close to wrapping up here and, and be able to really put a bow on this podcast episode for our listeners, uh, I did want to ask you, you mentioned employing your kids. Can you just briefly touch on that real quickly and how that can be a strategy for a business owner? Yeah. Um, this one, this one, there is a lot of logistics in it. And so you need to make sure that you have a specific one-on-one conversation Um, to make sure you're going to apply this correctly. The way that it works is that um, self-employed people can pay their children wages, W-2 wages, but those wages are not subject to the Social Security and Medicare tax withholding. So as a business owner, I may be able to pay my child for work that they're going to do in the business, and we want this to be legitimate work, You know, maybe they're cleaning the offices, maybe they're doing filing, maybe they're whatever the task is, we're going to get running around flyers. That's one of my favorite ones, you know, advertising, Um, taking pictures, using pictures of your family on business paraphernalia. Guess what? That's you're paying modeling fees to your kids for that. Um, There are ways to pay your children. And again, no Social Security and Medicare tax. So it's, I'm going to pay my kid $1,000. I pay my kid $1,000. Well, as long as my child isn't making more than the standard deduction each year, my child's never going to pay income tax on that money either. Right now, new tax reform is $12,000 for a single individual. So I can effectively pay my kids up to $1,000 for work that they're doing in my company, and I don't have to pay Social Security and Medicare tax, and it's not taxable to them. Caveat, this is good for children 
before the, before the year that they turn 18. So as long as they're 17 and younger, this works. Okay. Gotcha. On a, another caveat, I'm not going to pay a six-year-old or a six-month-old infant $12,000. Right. So, Unless they're very cute in modeling. Just kidding. They, they do tons of modeling shoots. All right. But, uh, you know, so we, we, again, yeah. we want to take advantage of this, but let's be smart about it. Absolutely. And I was, that was a facetious that I, I would definitely make sure that you're using that with your tax strategist, um, even if they are modeling and they are the poster child for your company, um, probably not worth um, that kind of payment at this time. So if you are a doctor, dentist, or chiropractor, and you'd like to find out how to best apply the tax code for your specific situation, which may or may not incorporate these strategies and additional strategies based on your specific business model and your practice and who you have working for you and the number of people on your team and, and how long until you plan to sell your business or sell your um, real estate that the business is in. There's many different pieces that would need to be taken into consideration. But Dustin, how would someone reach out to you and what would they expect when they do reach out for a consultation? Sure. Um, so I'm going to do that in the opposite order. So what can somebody expect? I mean, ultimately what it would be is, is we would have a conversation where we would look at, I'd like to see a copy of your last filed tax returns. And we would look to see what you are taking advantage of and what you are doing and talk about what your goals are and, and where you want to be and, and what, what, what makes most sense to you. Again, while maybe I don't love a SEP IRA, that does not mean that I'm not going to let you do a SEP IRA. It's going to come, it's ultimately your decision. It's your money. It's your tax life. I'm just going to advise you as to what I think the best things are. Um, and that, you know, maybe we're going to talk about strategies like this. Maybe we're going to talk about your building. Maybe whatever. We're going to have a discussion. Usually those discussions are between 30 minutes and an hour. And find out what makes the most sense to you or, or for you in your situation. Um, and then if it makes sense, we talk about working together. And what does that look like? And and, and what types of things can I do to provide value to you and help you save tax dollars and, and position yourself to be in the best financial position moving forward? So that, that's kind of what it would look like if somebody would like to chat with me. Um, that's great. And how do they reach out to you? Best way to get in touch with me is to either give my office a call or to shoot me an email. Um, the office number is 801 980 9495. And uh, best email for me is Dustin, D U S T I N, at K I N G S T A X L L C.com. That's Kings Tax LLC.com. Absolutely. We'll make sure that we have the link for that in the show notes because it's very important to make sure that if somebody is hearing some value in this podcast today and the things that you're talking about and wants to figure out what it looks like for them that they do reach out because you have shared a ton of very tangible, very real value today on this show. So I really appreciate you doing that and providing yourself as a resource and for being here on the podcast you're today. You're welcome. I always, I always love chatting with you guys and, and, and I love that our philosophies are so closely aligned. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dustin. And in closing, remember, everyone, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd. 
and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk, and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.